Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Join host Matt Arnold for in-depth conversations with artists, designers, entrepreneurs, and civic leaders as he explores how they approach their craft and represent a modern version of the Iowa Idea. This podcast tells the stories of Iowa natives, transplants, and friends who demonstrate the Iowa Idea in the 21st century. Don't create boxes, create swirls. In this episode of the Iowa Idea Podcast, I'm joined by Bill Schmarzo. Bill is an author, professor, innovator, and consultant. He's the author of four books, including The Economics of Data Analytics and Digital Transformation. Bill is a former chief innovation officer at Hitachi Ventara, where he was responsible for driving Hitachi Ventara's data science and co-creation efforts. He was selected for Hitachi's limited... 2020 Solution Innovation Award for his groundbreaking work in data science and automated machine learning. Bill has held leadership roles at Dell EMC and Yahoo. He grew up in Charles City, Iowa. He attended Coe College where he majored in math, business administration, and computer science. He played basketball and jazz trumpet in college, and he earned his MBA at the Tippie College of Business at the University of Iowa. Bill and I dig into the power of data science rooted in human-centered design. We explore the parallels between basketball, jazz, and innovation, and what Bill calls organizational improvisation. Not to date ourselves, but we talk about some of our early tech experiences, including IBM 1130s and SyQuest cartridges. I appreciate Bill's description of data model drift as the world continues to change and evolve around us, and his call for might moments to help organizational learning. We look at the role of diversity in high-performing teams and the importance of nurturing curiosity and the ability to unlearn so that we can learn new things. Bill shares his personal journey on learning business intelligence to enable data science. It was a pleasure having Bill join me on the podcast. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Bill, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. If you don't mind for our guests, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Hi, Matt. So um, I'm Bill Schmarzo. Um, I've been in the data and analytics space for, let's just say, a really, really long time. Um, I have a wide variety of experiences. I think of myself in a couple of frames. I think I'm first and foremost, I'm a teacher. I actually do teach um, at a couple of universities, um, Menlo College here in the Bay Area, as well as University of San Francisco and the National University of Ireland in Galway. So I I see myself as first and foremost a teacher and I really enjoy that, whether it's teaching students or working with organizations and corporations to help them as well. Um, I am an author, I've written four books. yeah, you know, writing books is one of those things where um, you got to do it once to kind of prove yourself you can do it. And if you keep doing it, then you're sadomasochistic because it's, uh, <laughs> I, I don't know why I've written four, but you get compelled. So I, I, I'm an author, I write a book, and I'm an innovator. I've, I've, I find that um, what, what I'm good at doing is seeing patterns, 
because I talk to a wide variety of companies and people and I see patterns and I try to create process around those patterns. So um, that's what I do. And I guess the, the, the areas that I'm most involved in as far as conversations, I talk a lot about data monetization. How do companies get value out of their data? It always comes back to the economics of data and analytics. That's very much a, a key part of that monetization conversation. And, and finally, you know, data science is the is sort of the, you know, we're the modern day alchemists turning data into gold. Right on. Thank you. And you have some deep Iowa roots. Do you mind sharing kind of your, your oh. Iowa connections? Oh, my gosh. Yes. So born and raised in Charles City, Iowa. Um, yes, I was there in 1968 when the, the big tornado hit. And, and whenever I would tell someone I'm from Iowa, from Charles City, they'd say, oh, that's, that's Tornado City. And I'm like, yeah, yep, I was there. It was pretty awful. Um, did my undergraduate work at Coe College in Cedar Rapids and got my MBA from the University of Iowa. And I have a son. My, I met my wife at Coe. And I had a son who went to college at Coe and is now he got his um, his his um, doctorate from or his uh, his advanced degree from Iowa State. So I don't hold it against him. He wants to go to Moo U. That's fine with me. But um, he's now living in Bettendorf and married and such. So I, I still have very tight roots in Iowa and um, try to get back as often as I can. Great, thank you. And so you were a, you were a math major in in undergrad. I was a math math. Um, and computer science. I was co-college's second computer science graduate. I'm bummer I wasn't first, but Fred Ward ahead of me beat me to that. Um, and then I, I also have a business, a business administration degree from Co as well. Right on. That had to be exciting uh, as a exploring a new discipline, though. Even even though you know one versus two, but as an undergrad, getting to explore some new space. It was, you know, it was. It, it's hard to explain to students about you know how computers work back then. Right? I had to install the hard drive myself into the IBM 1130. I had to tell it where to start the program, where to end the program. Uh, the only way that you could integrate in, interface with it, they had 13 registers, toggle switches you could turn up and right. And they made me. I wrote a, a, a rocket simulation program that you know ate up all the cycles, and so I had to go in at three o'clock in the morning whenever I wanted to run my program. So. Yeah, people are like, wow, <laughs> did you have to hand crank the machine to get it going too? And I'm like, basically, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's that's great. I um, I remember uh, during my my undergrad at the University of Iowa, uh, it was a it was an English class, but it was one of the first classes taught in the Information Arcade, which was the first computer classroom that Iowa had really set up, and we couldn't. Uh, we couldn't turn in any papers. Right? We we uh, turned our, our projects in on PsyQuest cartridges, and uh, those were remember those are pretty big because they they, they could hold forty four meg of of memory. <laughs> those are ones when you when you shook it and went wobble 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 wobble. <laughs> yeah, and your your drive much much like you know maybe I'm uh, oversensitive to it now, but any any time a fan really kicks on 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 my laptop. It still it makes me nervous oh, that it drives me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, and and then you uh, and to me these all make make sense in the connection. But I'm I'm interested because you you also uh, were in jazz band and you played basketball in college. That I did. Yeah. Um, um, the, the advantage of going to a small school like Co is that you, know, you you can do lots of things. You got to sacrifice things you don't do. Um, but um, yeah, I played basketball at Co, and um, 
uh, was a two-time All-American there. And I, um, I ended up playing lead trumpet in the jazz band my senior year. The, the story is I, when I went decided to go to Co, they had promised me that I could do both basketball and jazz band, right? That was, you know, a small school, you can do them both. And of course, many of you get there like, uh, no, you really can't. You can do one or the other. So I played basketball, but I continued to take jazz lessons from the, from the instructor. And then our, my junior year, Paul Smoker, who had taught at the University of Iowa, became the head of the jazz band at Co. I took lessons from him. And my senior year, he approached me and said, hey, Schmars. Now, he, he really liked me because I was so tall, right? I was like the tallest guy he knew, right? So he was always like just massive, mystified by the fact that I was so tall. He's like, Schmars, he's like, I got a problem. Our lead jazz trumpet player is going to New York term. He's going all senior semester. Can you play jazz trumpet? Can you play lead trumpet for us? I'm like, yeah, I can, but I got basketball. What am I going to do? And he goes, let me take care of that. And so the basketball coach, and who is Don Toon, and the and Paul Smoker worked out an arrangement where I would I could do both. It was, you know, I my my favorite story is we had our varsity JV game, which is kind of a you know a, just a warm up game and kind of a throwaway game. It was the same night as our opening jazz concert. And so we, I played the first half of the of the game. I think I scored 28 points in the first half. I just, every time I got the ball, I shot, right? Cause I'm, I'm not playing the second half. I'm getting all my, my shots in, right? Then I go downstairs. I don't even shower. I just put my, 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 my tux on run across campus, carrying my trumpet, hurry to the back of stage and start playing. And of course, everybody's around me looking like, holy cow, he's all sweaty and stinky. <laughs> Too bad. I'm here. I'm playing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. So for me, and because because you talked about uh, kind of process around patterns and, you know, as for myself, spending a lot of time in the innovation space, I, I just love seeing uh, more of the, the creative side with jazz and Trump and, and also um, almost like leaderless teams, like right with jazz ensembles when they when when it's going well, when other people know to take lead or to step up or or to uh, defer, and then also with the fluid nature of basketball too, I can I can already see a lot of connections to uh, innovation, and then that connected with the patterns that one might find as they're looking into right, like it's almost a signal to noise kind of uh, problem at times. And if you if you have good patterns, it feels like you're able to sift through noise. Uh, I'm just, those are all assumptions on my part, but just thinking oh, about your journey, are those connected? Oh God. Yeah. I think what, what you, you summarize it very nicely. Um, when I, when I see a pattern, I don't see a series of if then rules. What I see are a series of guardrails within which organizations and people can bounce around. You know, I, I love this idea of, I call it organizational improvisation. Right, the ability for the organization to ebb and flow as it needs to, to move the right people in, to give people new chances to lead. Right, it's it's all about that organizational improvisation. Which, by the way, you can't have with organization boxes. If you put people in boxes, you lose that improv. In fact, I talk a lot about don't create boxes, create swirls. Let people swirl between teams. And my favorite example of organizational improv is actually the the women's U.S. Olympic soccer team. You know, to watch them on the soccer field. And it wasn't like there's a coach yelling, you know, Julie, go there and Sandy, go here and Marisha, go there. No, these, they're all operating within the bounds that they're in. They share a common charter, a common mission. They got a common language. They've got some common approaches and methodologies, and they know each other. And the, the, their performance on the field was just, it was stunning. It was like ballet. So when I, when I think about patterns, 
I don't look for rigidity. I look for repeatability and the ability to take something and repeat it again and again and again within the context of the fact that this process has to be able to learn and adapt. Because what works now may not work as, because the world's always changing. It's like, you know, in the data science space, we have model drift. You build a model, as soon as you build a model, it starts to drift. Not because the model is bad, but because the world is changing constantly. So that's how I think about all these things I think, Matt, come together. This ability to see a pattern, to, to build a, a repeatable framework or a guiding framework around that. But even within that framework, allow people to poke and push and even sometimes step outside the framework to try something different because the framework only is there to guide and to capture the learnings when people try something different. Right, right. Thank you. Yeah, I, I love, I love your your notion of organizational improv. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I used to be part of. Uh, you know, I've I've had training in improv comedy. I've been part of an improv troupe and seen so many of the similarities there. And it might be oversimplifying, but the yes and like you know building on something rather yes. than leading with no. And then another important part too is the. Uh, notion of declare and commit, right? It it is about having a point of view, right? It, that's where I think some people get lost. That improv is is not without ideas. It's it's exploring those ideas and seeing which ones work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and how and how you might iterate. So, and I, well, you, I see strong connections with jazz too. You 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 can't be afraid to fail. I think that's when you play jazz trumpet, you're going to try combinations. Oh, that one didn't work, right? Yeah. But you, you you don't know what works if you don't try. And I like to say, as an organization, if you don't have enough might moments, you'll never have any breakthrough moments, which means you have to try things that might work. You don't know that they're going to work, but you got to try them. And if you're if you're not willing to 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 break the mold, if you're not willing to try and fail, you'll never learn. And I, and I like your point about this diversity of perspectives is really important. When you, when you create this organizational improv, you don't, I mean, you don't create a baseball team with nine shortstops, right? That, that, that right. team would, that team would suck. They might hit the ball well, but they're not going to get anybody out. No pitcher's going to throw the ball. Oh, God knows where. Right. So you, you, you have people have roles and responsibilities and they have flexibility within those roles. They, they may have to do something different when the, you know, when the batter bunts the ball, the pitcher also has to field and people are moving around the field to cover things. So I, I like this idea that you have patterns around which you can put a learning, a learning framework, but within that framework, you allow people to have the organizational improv. And the only thing I ask from my, from my, my people who, I, who work with me, especially my people who report to me, is that you're going to make a decision. I have two requests. One, make sure it's an intelligent decision that you've thought through the ramifications of what if that decision's wrong? What are maybe the unintended consequences, the second and third level consequences? The second thing is make sure you teach us and help us learn what you learned. If it worked, tell us what worked. If it failed, tell us what failed. So we can all continuously learn and adapt as, a, as an empowered team. Yeah, Bill, I love it. I'm a, I'm a big fan of continuous learning for organizations and, and teams. And so that, uh, and I think there, there's one, you need support, right? Like, is it a safe environment? And another one is that you need to be willing to, to put yourself out there, right? That I, I mean, I, so many organizations where I see people get, get kind of 
stuck is that they're almost in this transactional mindset. I went to school, I learned this, so this should be good forever. <laughs> right? And, uh, and then they continually approach new complex problems with an old mindset where, uh, you know, it's, it's more about risk aversion than right. Being able to, to, to fail safely or fail quickly so that you can learn. But how do you, how do you address that with your organizations? So that you, you, you hit, there's two things that, that come to mind. Um, the, the first one is around nurturing curiosity. Now, I, I think as, as a society, we do a, a really good job of driving curiosity out of everybody, right? It, when you're born, you have a natural curiosity, right? I took apart my dad's radio. And when I put it back together, there were extra parts. Guess what? It didn't work, right? And I was, in a, I, I was not in a good spot then. But you know what? There's, we are born as humans with natural curiosity. And I'm going to argue that in the end, that may be what differentiates us from artificial intelligence is the fact that we have this natural curiosity, but starting in school, we have standardized testing and standardized curriculums, and we have all these standardizations in high school and middle school and college. We, we all go through all this standardized stuff and, and, and we go into an organization and we're put into organizational boxes, a command and control structure. This is your job, this is not your job. And anything about curiosity gets rubbed out. They just do everything they can to rub us out. So the first thing you have to do is you got to find a way to re-nurture that curiosity. I'm, I'm a big fan, as you know, Matt, of the design thinking techniques. I think they're marvelous because they allow us as humans to get back to our root. There's nothing, nothing magical about them other than the fact that you're going to embrace your inner five-year-old all over again and try different things. So to me, you have to nurture curiosity. And you said a really key word, within a safe space. So people have to feel confident that when they try something and they fail, they're not going to get fired. They're not going to get punished. They're not going to get penalized. Again, as long as they're learning and sharing, that's how you do it. So number one is curiosity. The second one's a harder one. And, and Matt, this is one, this is one I personally struggle with. And I still do today. How do you unlearn? You, you, you learn certain things that you believe are the gospel. It's the way you do things. And then you run into a situation where that doesn't work. And you're forced to step back and say, well, is there a different approach for this? Is, can I make my approach work? Or do I need to basically sort of unlearn and jettison my old approach and embrace a new one? My, my personal um, journey on that was around when I went from the world of business intelligence to the world of data science. And everything I learned about data aggregations and conform dimensions and, you know, all that kind of stuff and, you know, sort of the very rigid nature of a data warehouse. When I went to Yahoo and had to become a, learn how to be a data scientist, everything I knew was a, was, a, was a liability. I started with the wrong things. I always started by thinking, what's the data model look like? And then data science, you know, the data science is, you know, what's the hypothesis are trying to prove? It's not, right? So it was a rough process. And I had some great data scientists through my years who have been very patient and working with me and, and gently patting me on the back saying, no, Schmarzo, that's not the way, the way I think about it. But it's been a constant struggle for me to make sure that I'm always willing to, to learn different perspectives because it might cause me to have to unlearn so I can learn something new. And my analogy is when you're climbing a ladder, at some point in time, you got to let go of that rung below you, right? Otherwise, you can't go up. So letting go of that rung can be scary as you reach up to grab that next one. 
I love it. I love there's so many different things I want to dig in here. Uh, one about unlearning. Are you familiar with Ed Hess's book, Hyper Learning? I am not. No, it was released uh, late last year. And uh, I, th- I, th- I think you'd really appreciate it because one of the things that uh, Ed talks about for adaptability is that we have to unlearn. Right. We have to have that ability. And then one of the other things that I love is that he talks about uh, then a foundation for collaboration being uh, meaning making conversations where you actually have agenda list conversations with people around you because uh, one, you, you have to suppress your ego to have an agenda list conversation. But then the other is what are those things that might pop up like, you know, just from converse, if I had an agenda while I'm talking to you, you know, it's Bill, I need this, this, and this, we might only be talking about data science, right? Yep. But what if I found out that I didn't know about basketball or I didn't know about jazz and then something comes up and I'm, oh, you should go talk to Bill. Bill's an expert in this area. Bill has some really interesting ideas, but I'm, I'm not doing Ed's work justice. But what oh. I, I found interesting is the uh, one of his key components now in, in this world of hyper complexity, how do we unlearn and also how do we keep general principles you know, it's it's like that general sign of intelligence. Can you keep two different ideas suspended at the same time? Which is which is hard for us guys because we're we're like we're really bad at multi-processing. I found one of the things I realized early in my life, if I have to multi-process, I'm I'm really bad at it. I'm really shitty at it. <laughs> Just, yeah. you know, I do one task, great. I do the next task and I have to get better at time slicing. Well, and I'll tell you the the work that I've done in the in the UX space is that it is um uh, people can't multitask when they, when now that they can actually say so you, people, some people are better than others at switching tracks quickly, yeah. but yeah. you, you're not, you're, you're, you're actually never multitasking. You, you can set things in motion in parallel, right. And yeah. hope to catch it later. Uh, what well, you other- know what, Matt, you just made my day. I don't feel like I'm an idiot. Okay. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just in, in common like everybody else about doing that. That's good. Incompetence enjoys company. <laughs> there you go. Um, and then the I loved you were talking about curiosity as well, and the importance of curiosity. And um, I, you know, actually, I'll, I'll probably post this in the show notes, or I want to send it to. But uh, uh, a friend and and kind of co-conspirator of mine, Cassini Nazir, he's a designer from Texas, and we've worked on some conference uh, together. Uh, he gave a great keynote uh, this year for World IA Day on just on the topic of curiosity and how do we cultivate uh, curiosity and uh, just such an important thing and to put the different different points on where it's like kind of knocked out of us, where I think uh, this could be apocryphal, but I think I read where in general humans are their most creative is about first grade. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, that's what I invented my, I invented my thing finder machine back then. If you lost something, it would find it for you. It had all these wires hanging off of it. And because <laughs> uh, there was one experiment, you know, the it's like you you have the dotted box. Not there's nine dots and can yeah, you, and going outside the box, and then thing, you have yeah. to go outside the box. Well, there was there was one image I saw of a first grader that folded up his box and just stuck his pencil through so he could do it in one line. <laughs> wow. Wow, that's pretty cool. And then they then they proceeded to put him into into all kinds of things, and now he's an accountant somewhere. <laughs> Probably seen as having behavior disorders. And <laughs> well, um, you know, you know, Matt, when you this this topic's important because at some point in time, machines are going to learn faster than us. They already are, right? Um, yeah. What's the um, 
the book, you know, 10,000 hours, you're supposed to master a task. Um, oh, then, uh, uh, Malcolm Gladwell. Gladwell. Yeah. 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 Right. 10,000 hours, you master, master something. There is a million Teslas driving around with AI models inside of it. And every hour, it's beating our 10,000 hours by magnitude. Right. We're never going to be able to keep up as the as the CPUs get more and more powerful, as the learning algorithm techniques get more and powerful. We're never going to learn faster than them. And the one thing that's going to be the, the advantage we have is that we're not held captive by the data set around us, which is which is really what an AI model is. AI model is trapped by its data set. It really can only do what's in the data set. We have the ability to be create to go outside the data set and to look at other things and, to, and and approach other things. So I do think in the end, where AI machine learning are going to do, are going to force humans to become more human. And that's going to get back to that curiosity, to empathy, things like that are going to become much more important. Thank you. And so uh, I don't mean for this to sound like a challenge, but I think it might be a kind of a provocative area. Uh, so what, both your innovation side and your data science side here, um, and and we know I mean they're not mutually exclusive, but sometimes they seem to be in 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 different camps. Uh, are you familiar with Saul Kaplan from Business Innovation Factory? I don't know if I am or not. I don't think okay. so. Saul Saul is good, great guy, and has been a, been a guest on the podcast too. One of the things that so just to tell you like short version of his arc is he was trained as a pharmacist, realized he didn't want to count pills for a living. Uh, but then he became product manager uh, at Lilly when, uh, in charge of Prozac and the Prozac launch, then went into management consulting, then government business development, and now he works on innovation for social good uh, and the okay. uh, business innovation factory. Has. One of his big beliefs now is after looking at the world from a science lens, uh, basically an MBA lens, now from a design thinking lens, he's also a big fan of design thinking, is one of the struggles is we can't analyze our way to the future is that uh, that you know a lot of what we're doing is a generative act going forward. We can analyze going backwards and it's it's like that Kierkegaard for me, the, the philosophy of it's hard because life life is understood backwards but lived forwards. And so I'm kind of curious um, on your your views as you work with data science and and I've always appreciated the way you bring in the humanity part of this, but how we look at uh, the importance of analysis, and then also the you know the generative act of design going forward. That's an interesting statement. You, I wrote a point down here. Yeah, the AI and ML predict the future based upon the past, right? Right. So if and the world's always changing. So by default, the AI and ML models are going to go out of sync with the real world. I don't know how fast, but it will. Um, and I'm not sure I'm following. I, I'm not sure I remembered your question because that that point kind of jumped out at me. Yes, that, that that we we do get we get too. So let me here's a point I was going to make. Yeah, we get too infatuated with um with what we can do with the technology without always thinking about the ramifications of where it impacts the human. Um, you think about AI as an example. <clears throat> The, the places of an organization that are going to benefit the most from AI is not the mahogany row and the VPs who really don't have any idea what, what's going on with the business. It's the frontline employees. It's the, it's the people who are talking to patients and students and 
customers. It's the technicians who are trying to keep the cars and the and amusement park rides and, and, and hospitals up and running. It's, it's at the point of engagement. And this is where it gets really interesting. If you, if you merge the continuous learning and adapting aspects of AI and ML with the continuous learning and adapting aspects of human empowerment, you get a great synergy. If you don't bring those together, the AI models, like I said, eventually drift off to being irrelevant and the humans get unempowered. They get, and all the great curiosity ideas, they never get fully exploited. And, and we all know, we know how organizations think about their employees. We you know, get rid of all the bullshit about or our, our employees are the most important part of our company. Oh, really? The minute you have troubles, the minute the economy goes south, what's the first thing you do? Goodbye, employees, right? Yep. Goodbye, all your experienced people. You're not so we we don't understand. We we're over infatuated with the machine learning and AI aspect of this equation, and we don't fully exploit the empowerment, the organizational improv, the the sense of empathy and curiosity that's in the human side. And so there's very few companies that really think about that. When I was when I was a chief innovation officer at Atachi, that's what we thought about. We thought about how do we empower humans with AI? How do we create continuously learning and adapting humans that can who, who know how to how do these continuous learning and adapting AI models help the human continuous learning humans to continuously learn? Yeah, and it's a it's a great challenge. It brings together all the concepts of this data science, design thinking, UX, prototyping. All these things come to a huge collision point because if you can pull this off. The results are are you reinvent processes. You don't you don't optimize. You reinvent. If I got a second here, let me walk you through an example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a big fan of Captain Crunch cereal. Okay, we all have our <laughs> we all have our, our our things in life to carry. We have our weaknesses. You Minus, have a steel a steel plate in your mouth. <laughs> yeah, that stuff is that stuff's harder than teeth. And and don't don't give me that those berry stuff. Right, I don't want the crunch berries. I want the real stuff. The original. <laughs> so when I wake up in the morning. And I go to my pantry, I want to find a full box or a box of Captain Crunch in there. And nothing pisses me off more than to grab the box and realize it's damn near empty, right? The, one of the kids has emptied it out for me the night before they had to have a snack and they emptied it out. So what do I got to do to get my cereal? Well, the old model is, you know, get dressed, find my car keys, you know, drive down, navigate traffic, go to the grocery store, find a parking spot, got to go to the back, find where my Captain Crunch is. I got to go stand in the checkout line. I stand in the you know, 10 or less line. And there's a person ahead of me who's got clearly more than 10 items I can count. I'm not stupid. And then you navigate home and, you know, half hour later, you finally sit down home and you, and you pour yourself. And by the way, you better have checked you had milk too. Right. <laughs> right. So that's, that's a really painful process. And from a customer journey perspective, there's all kinds of negative impeders of value creation there. Right. There's just right. tons. Right. So what is, what is Amazon going to do? Well, Think about what they're going to do with Alexa and drones. I shake the box. It's out. I'm going to go, Alexa, give me two boxes of the Captain Crunch ASAP. And it's very likely, depending on where you live, in the next you know, 20, 30 minutes, there's a drone going to be dropping off a box of Captain Crunch, maybe even quicker than that, right? They didn't optimize my process of having to find my car keys and drive the car down. They reinvented it. They, they got rid of all the, in the customer journey, they understood the customer journey they went through that's an inhibitor that's an inhibitor that's an inhibitor and they got rid of all the inhibitors and they replaced them that's a that's a reinvention because they understood that what was valuable to the customer 
right? And they used the technology to build up the things that were valuable. They also identified what was an impediment to the customer and they eliminated those. Yeah, I, Bill, I, I, I love that. One of the things, because uh, like looking at those friction points and how can we uh, either reduce or remove those? And uh, what was, I think it was just last month. Yeah, it was in April. Um, in in nature in the science journal nature they talked about humans uh inability to subtract when when we come to problems we we tend to add looking for a solution and so like when you when you talk about these revolution and breakthroughs it's a lot like i don't like you know in the systematic inventive thinking framework what if we you know remove these things so like you know from a from a design thinking like or appreciative inquiry what 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 would what would shopping for cereal look like if i didn't have to drive to the store what would it look like if i if i didn't have to do all those steps there there is a lot of money to be made in eliminating inhibitors of value creation and i would argue that um, Uber's entire business model is built upon eliminating those factors, right? If, if I want to take my wife out, we want to go someplace nice to eat, we get dressed up, driving the car, finding a parking spot, you know, you got to pay the valet, whatever it is, right? There's, and then if you're going to drive home, you can't drink too much. And so there's, there's all these things that driving a car gets in the way of that impede value, right? So how do I get around that? I go to Uber and Uber has done a great job. They've optimized a single decision, a single decision that I have to make, how to get from where I am to where I wanna be. That's it. Now they've built all this great technology. It's very, the, the UI is very engaging. I get a chance to watch a car yeah. driving toward me. I get a chance to pick who I, who, you know, the, the person who's gonna pick me up, they have, you know, 4.9 stars. That's good versus, you know, two stars and are a mass murderer. Probably not good, not good. I don't want that person. Um, they're cheaper, but they're not, yeah. a mass murderer. I'm gonna pass <laughs> on that one. So the. I think this, again, this is an example for me of where I see three important disciplines coming together. One is data science, right? It's the ability to um, create predictive propensities, understand what people like to do. There's the, there's the discipline of design thinking, which is really about getting in the heads of your customer. And I, I fell in love with the customer journey map. I think that's one of the most powerful tools out there. It's just like the first time I saw it, I go, oh, how could I not have thought like this my whole life? This is such a no-brainer. And then you weave economics in there, right? And economics is about the creation of wealth and value. And if you think about a customer journey map, I can actually identify the points of value creation, and I can identify the points of value destruction. And I can build data science around that to, to capture that, to scale it, to repeat it. These things all come together. And I, I'm very jealous of, of the students of today. I teach a class at Menlo called um, Future Proofing Your Career. No matter what your career might be, whether it be a nurse or an accountant or you know, whatever it might be, data science, design thinking, and economics are going to play a role in that. You don't need to be economists. You don't need to be a data scientist. You don't need to be a design thinker. But you better understand what those do and how you, as a person who's looking to advance their professional career, leverages the combination, the blending of those three things to really future-proof yourself. Bill, I love it. And uh, when you were, you were talking about those two, um, one of the things I, I also I share from a brand strategy perspective is also those value creation points, like the moments of truth. 
It's also um, how your your business can be a little bit more lean because if you if you master the moments of truth, you get more grace from your customers. Right. And so, and because one of the things I argue is customers don't buy org charts, they buy value. But but so many companies want to push their org chart upon the world. And to me, that's also <laughs> when when the customer journey starts to fall apart because you get these these shitty customer support statements like, oh, that's not a, that's that's operation. So I'm going to yeah. have to send you over there or that's a fulfillment issue. Oh, I can't help you. So I need to send you over there. But I, I love I love your concept, too, of, of of the value component in the economics combined with the data and the design. Matt, let me take this one step further. I, I like this master the moments of truth and how organizations can do more with less. I mean, today, from a product perspective, and I've talked to a lot of product companies, you have engineers and product management building features because they think it's important without really understanding how important it is to their customers. They don't, they don't maybe even know who their customers are. They don't have built, they've, if they've built personas, they certainly haven't built customer journey maps. They don't have service design. They've not really thought about it. And they'll say, oh yeah, we use agile, but no. So there's a concept that I've been, I've been championing. I think I'm the discoverer of this. It's called nanoeconomics. And it is the economics of the individual predicted propensity. Whether it's an individual human or an individual device, we can get down at the individual level, we can build predicted propensity so we know what they're likely to do, what they're likely to buy, what services they're gonna need. We can become very laser focused. When we do that as an organization, and we apply that level of deep granularity to our customers, what organization would realize first off on a product side, what product features are most valuable to the customers and why, and which ones aren't that I either don't provide or I outsource or just skip them all together. This is really gonna come to a head and is coming to a head as companies move to a, a um, as a service business. So instead of selling, selling you a, you know, a, uh, a jet engine, I'm gonna sell you thrust on, on demand, right? You're gonna only pay for how much thrust you use in that jet engine. Now it's on the manufacturer to make sure I understand the product usage patterns, the customer usage patterns, so I can make sure I got pricing right, the service level agreements right, I mitigate the risk, right? All the things, there, there's these organizations that are moving to as a service business are gonna to need to learn more and more detailed granular insights, predicted propensities about their customers. I That's great, I love it. Uh, want to back up a, a little bit? Um, you would you'd mentioned Gladwell, and then as we were talking about business, so these these two elements are going to come together. But um, I, I was on a road trip uh, uh, this weekend, and uh, I was listening to Gladwell's new book, Bomber Mafia. Are mm, you okay? And so one of the bomber mafia is really looking at uh, some of uh, World World War II and 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 bombing technology, and he has a TEDx talk. Uh, this is like just an expanded version of his TEDx talk, but the Norden bomb scope. Um, so the, the U.S. military spent a huge part of their budget on building this this scope, and. It was a mechanized computer where you would calculate. It was like, how high are you? The uh, you know, and, and it was it was keeping in in uh, the idea of even Earth curvature, how how high you are, how much the Earth might move while cool. a bomb is being dropped. So all of these all of these really sophisticated precision elements in there. But then they talked about the big failure was <laughs> the real life 
is that uh, it needed to maintain line of sight. So bombers had to be below clouds. Oops. Right. <laughs> no, uh, thank you. <laughs> and they, they talk about the, the pilot or the bombardier puckering, getting nervous. So now they're changing how they're looking through the lens. <sighs> and, oh, and so, and then uh, a plane needing to take evasive action where everything was tested in the lab, where everything is safe and secure. And so one of the things when, when Gladwell's talked about this and it's one of my beliefs where organizations get in trouble is confusing precision for accuracy. Amen. So yeah. I, I see organizations that are really excited about their data sets and they they'll, they'll tell you how, how precise their data is. But to your point, it's like, they don't have an accurate target of, well, where, where's value created? Where is it diminished? What's meaningful for the customer? So I was just kind of curious again, too, because uh, you're, you're keeping both an innovation and a data mindset in place. Again, they're not mutually exclusive, but I see, I see struggles in organizations when they almost over-index. And to your point, the, the model drift that you said on past data, where it almost becomes transactional. This is what I was taught. So we're going to double down on this. Wow. There's so many, so many thoughts bumped to mind. So I love this quote, confusing precision for accuracy, because I think what we see in the data in a data science world is confusing precision for effectiveness, right? Um, yeah. It's about how do I be more effective? And, and sometimes I don't need to be horribly precise to do that. And to know how precise I need to be revolves around the, the single most important factor for data scientists to know when is good enough, good enough. And that's the cost of the false positive and false negatives, right? If you, as a data scientist, have not gone through a process, and by the way, this isn't a data scientist's job, this is the job to work with the stakeholders to collaborate the cost of the false positive and false negatives, then you never know how much precision do you need. When I was at Yahoo, for example, if I had 75% confidence that you were interested in digital cameras, when in reality, maybe you were interested in vacations, the cost of being wrong was just an annoyance and a, you know, a fraction of a penny. You're going to get a COVID shot. I hope it's a little bit higher for predictability than you know 75. Yeah. percent So there's this 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 false positive false learnings or false positive false negative learnings is really important. Let me give you a real world example around a real problem we're seeing today around AI model confirmation bias. Because remember we talked earlier that the model the AI models only know what the data tells it. So if your data is skewed towards white males, then you're going to miss a big chunk of the marketplace, a growing chunk of the marketplace. And now how do you overcome that? And people talk about, well, the data is biased. And the data is what the data is, right? And, and how do you unbiased data? You know, we could spend weeks debating that question, but I got a better solution. What I want to do in my AI models is I want to be able to instrument and measure the false positives and false negatives out of that model. So let's, let's, let's do an example. Let's say that I have an AI model that's hiring people. And a false positive is thinking somebody's a good hire, you hire them and they bomb out, right? Well, that's actually pretty easy to measure. Hired this person, I have all their records here, I know their reviews and I saw them bomb out and I can feed that information back to the model and say, oh, this person, you, that model, hey model, you said this was a good hire? It wasn't. But here's where things get very interesting. <clears throat> the false negatives. That is the person you didn't hire. 
the student you didn't give admissions to, the loan you didn't give, that if you don't track those false negatives, right, and try to understand why I didn't give that person a loan and they end up being successful, why I didn't give that person a, a job and end up being Einstein, right, is if you don't address the false negatives, over time, because of the way the model is set up, you're going to shrink your total addressable market. You're going to rule out people and to the point where your business may not be viable anymore because you're only servicing a certain segment of customers who over time is going to shift and, 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 and move and such. So this idea of, of, of precision, accuracy, and effectiveness gets back to a real drill down into the understanding the costs and measuring false positive and false negatives, which I believe, by the way, is the is the least one way to address this AI model bias. Bias. So if we're not giving people loans because of a certain kind of characteristics in the data, but we're learning that those that was a person we should have given a loan to, we can feed it back, and the model can learn. Yeah, thank you. I know my 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 mental model too with uh, some of my concerns with with AI to is that is that bias is right now and I, I know it's it's emerging and growing but uh you know sometimes hearing the argument that it isn't biased right like these programs but but to me it's it's automating or scaling the bias of the people that put the model together right and but i love i love your idea of what well, again it goes back to continuous learning whether it's human or machine how do we feed that data back in the other way to the battle is bias too is you make sure you have that you're not optimizing on just a couple of variables, right? I, I like to make sure that when we look at building an AI model, I do want to consider, you know, financial variables, and I want to consider operational effectiveness variables, and I want to consider customer satisfaction variables. But I also need to start considering environmental variables because environment's becoming more and more important. I also need to consider social and diversity variables. And so what happens now is if I start to fully define the metrics and KPIs against which my AI model is trying to optimize, and I'm bringing in a diverse set of perspectives into that, now the AI model has a better chance, even with biased data, to start making better decisions and learning more quickly. Thank you. Uh, Bill, one of the things I want to jump into also with your, both from a, it could, from a teaching perspective, from data science, from business intelligence, from I'm going to stand for a second. Sorry, I'm, I'm not oh, leaving. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just wanted to uh, get talk to you a little bit about the notion of do you ever feel stuck, and if so, what are your techniques for getting getting unstuck? Or because uh, what I'm hearing too is I'm making an assumption, but uh, taking different perspectives seems to be something you're doing with data sets, like looking at different things. But I'm thinking for you and problem solving, how do you get yourself unstuck? Wow, what a great question. I don't think I've ever been asked that question before. Um, I, I, the thing that's front of mind for me right now is related to stuck, maybe not exactly, but it's related to failure. What do you, what do, you do when you fail and you can't seem to find the right answer? That you, you keep trying, you keep feel like you're pounding the head against the wall. Um, and I think that that's related to getting stuck. You, and what I find is when I'm in a situation like that, Matt, is that 
I haven't taken the time to pause and broaden my perspective, to reach out to people who are different than me, who have different perspectives. Um, I'm a big fan of, of a diversity of perspectives. I'm not a big fan of diversity of opinions because I don't, opinions are opinions. Not, but people who have perspectives, they can share with you, well, why do you have that perspective? What's the basis from that? So whenever I face a situation where I'm stuck and I feel like I'm, I'm failing and I'm just spinning my wheels, sometimes you're better off just to pause and think, go for a walk. I, I love going for walks out in, the, out in the hills somewhere, right? Where I can you know, not stumble onto a rattlesnake. I'd be, that's probably pretty good to avoid that. And just, and just get in a calm place where I can think and contemplate. I'll have a little notebook in my back pocket and I'll stop and take a note and stick it in there. Um, but I don't listen to music. I just find that sometimes, you know, maybe this is the Iowa, Iowa boy in me who just says, sometimes you have to go to a quiet place and look inside yourself and figure out what it is that is you're trying to accomplish. I, I find, and, and don't take this as being too hokey, but I, I, I find that, you know, God never closes one door without opening others. And sometimes my biggest challenge is to have my eyes open to those other doors he's opened. And sometimes the secret to, to getting unstuck is just right there in front of you. But you got to take off the sunglasses. You got to clear away the cobwebs. And you realize, oh, my gosh, why don't I try that? And that's, by the way, the key thing, right? Why don't I try that? It may, I, I don't sure it's the answer. But what I have now isn't the answer. So let's try this. And so to me, it's been, how do you keep your head open for the possibilities that probably are right in front of you today, but you're so fixated on a certain way of thinking that you got on blinders and you missed those opportunities to unstick yourself, to move past failure, because it's right, right there in front of you. Thank you. I, I really appreciate that. And as you were talking about that, and then circling back to early in our conversation, you know, you were talking about standardized tests. And sometimes I wonder too about, um, you know, when we're dealing with the messy edges of innovation and, and progress, uh, there really isn't a right answer, right? There are better answers. And, but you know, we're, we're trained for uh, like multiple choice tests. And I, re I remember having a conversation with Annie Duke about decision making. And when it comes to complex adaptive systems, right, it's more, she says, like more of an archer's mindset. How can I get as close to the bullseye rather than thinking there's an absolute right or wrong answer? And so that's one thing. But I really appreciate, you know, also just getting away from the problem for a second and then like reprocessing and uh, sometimes uh, giving it some space. I've always found that with writing when I thought I'm sure an idea is absolutely in there, like, but I'm, and then I walk away and I come back and like, Oh no, it was just, uh. <laughs> but giving it some time to breathe and, and then going back to it. Yeah. That, that's how I, whenever I write, that's how, I mean, like a, a topic will pop in my head. I don't know why. I don't know where it comes yeah. from. Maybe it's from a customer conversation, talking to a student, but all of a sudden an idea will pop in my head. I'll hop on the computer and I'll just start typing like mad. I don't worry about formatting or spelling. I just put it out there and then I push it away. And I come back a day or two later and I go, is there something there? Now, surprisingly, most times, not maybe surprisingly, there's nothing there. And I push, I have a graveyard of potential blogs. Like it's pushed into that folder. It's really, really large. It's full of really bad blog ideas. I should call it bad blog ideas. 
But every now and then one hits, like this whole one about nanoeconomics, the one about the you know ethical AI and the, and the power of least, you know, of uh, false positives and false negatives. Those were really aha ones to me. But for every ha ha one, there's like five or six or seven that are just like, oh, that's awful. Who who would want to read that? <laughs> I love it. Uh, and this might not not to lead you, but I think you uh -oh. since you do have a future a future proofing your uh, career course. I mean, it, there's probably a lot of advice that you give there. But one of the things I like to cover with all my guests is the notion of advice, either good advice they might have received from a mentor in their career that stuck with them. Uh, for me, sometimes those look like when we were young and a wise elder said something to us, but it, it sounded absurd. And then we realized it was a pretty elegant <laughs> payload uh, that they had in that statement. Uh, or uh, also, just uh, another perspective is uh, from uh, Austin Cleon, Steel Like an Artist. He says, when we're giving advice, we're just talking to our younger self. Uh, so it's kind of curious, either either or both, but uh, advice that you might have for, for listeners. Well, I'll share with you what I shared with my, with my children. I said, until you're 30 years old, don't worry about your career. Just try different things find something you really like to do see if you can make money doing that see if you can have enjoyment see if you can put bread on the table you know find something you love to do don't don't chase dollars because the minute you start chasing dollars and you, you because the the other thing about until you're age 30 do what you want to do also means until you're age 30 don't take on debt right? really hold down your finance because what what frustrates more people and anything else is the fact you've got a large mortgage, you've got you bought a car you probably couldn't afford, you've taken on all this debt, and now you don't have any flexibility in your life. You you got to find the job that pays you so much, whether you like the job or not, whether you like the company or not. You got to do because you put yourself in a box. So there's two aspects to that. If you can keep your costs down, you give yourself so much flexibility to do something you really love to do. And by the way, who wouldn't want to do something they love to do? To, that way you, you wake up, you pop out of bed in the morning, right? And you're like, you're energized. It's like, holy cow, let's get started with this. And the, the day just moves and it's great because you're doing something you really are passionate about. Don't chase the dollar. And I, that's, again, it's really easy for me to say at my age, and it's really hard for somebody, a kid who's grown up, you know, who's, who's 24 years old, who's saying, wow, I'd love to have that new, that new Tesla. It looks really cool. $60,000. I can pay it off in 25 years. Sure. Right. But, you know, it's, it's, it's just, you know, don't put yourself in a box. Give yourself all those degrees of freedom so you can chase those things that you are passionate about. Thanks, Bill. Uh I really appreciate uh, you taking the time and, and, and I love the conversation. Was there anything that we didn't cover that you wanted to make oh, you sure? Asked me, you asked me a bunch of questions I never gotten before. So yeah, this was, this was very good. You know, it's, this, was, this was fun, Matt. You, 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 you pushed around the edges a lot. You can tell your, your background is really around design and understanding people. And um, you know, you, you can't be afraid of being put into an uncomfortable situation that's the only way you learn. And yeah. so I, when I when I find myself, and I'm currently on a project right now where I, I'm kind of uncomfortable, and I sort of whining about it, I stop and say, okay, what can you learn from this? And how can it benefit you going forward? So don't, don't be worried. Don't worry about being uncomfortable because uncomfortable is a real natural way of forcing you to have to learn and adapt.